Son of a bitch. Welcome to the show, everybody. Welcome to the show. I got a great one for you today. I got a bunch of bangers lined up. Um, we got Hassan and Vosh being banned from Twitch. We have uh, Andrew Cuomo being ordered to return $5.1 million in profits from his shitty book. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn talks about vaccine mandates. Ben Shapiro compares uh, left politics to morphine. Um, I'm just, I got a lot of great stuff today. There's also a great Business Insider piece. They did five months of an investigative report and found out the exact number of D.C. politicians who are in violation of the Stock Act, which means it's just another avenue of corruption. Uh, so we'll talk about that. Deep Fat Fried, the podcast was banned over satire. We'll talk about that. So um, get ready, man. Today is going to be a very, very good one. Very substantive, interesting, wonderful show. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Hassan Piker, one of the top uh, political Twitch streamers that there is, and um, Vosh, who's, uh, you know, a big, not just a big Twitch streamer, but also uh, a big YouTuber as well. They were both banned from Twitch for saying the word cracker. So let me go ahead and show you here. Um, Nathan Grayson says, Twitch has suspended two popular political streamers, Hassan the Hun and Vosh V, for using the word cracker, which Twitch seemingly considers a slur. You can see Hassan is responding there to streamer bans. Twitch partner Hassanabi has been banned. Yes, it is for exactly what you think it is, anti-white racism, for using the term cracker. Okay, so he was the first to go. We'll get to the details of that in a second. Um, And then uh, Vosh talked about Hassan being banned, and he says, it's a massacre. He went down for hateful slurs or symbols, using hateful slurs, hate symbols, or hate group emblems without context or in a harmful manner. Examples of violative conduct include, but are not limited to, Insulting another person with a hateful slur on stream, uh, posting an ASC2, I don't know what that is, representation of a hate symbol in chat, uh, uploading profile content that contains hateful slurs. Okay, Um, so my understanding is that what happened with Hassan is he was repeatedly using uh, the word cracker, and then he was getting some pushback from his chat, and so he invited somebody on to discuss the word cracker, and the argument that he was making is like, Listen, you might not like it, you might even consider it a slur, but the fact of the matter is cracker does not hold the same sort of potency as the N-word does. And so when having this conversation, we have to be nuanced and understand that there's a a long history of oppression and subjugation that goes along with the N-word that doesn't exist for cracker. And, I mean, look, the fact of the matter is if you're a white person and you've ever been called a cracker, your response generally is probably to just sort of laugh it off, whereas... If you're a black person and you've been called the N-word, hard E-R at the end, by some white person, it doesn't evoke the same emotions. So um, that's what happened with Hassan. Like I said, Hassan was banned. I believe it's for seven days, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, So Vosh does a video afterwards where he's basically talking about the Hassan Piker situation and just giving his take on the Hassan Piker situation. And he didn't even call anybody. Um, cracker, and then he got banned just for having the conversation about the term cracker, whereas Hassan early on was calling people cracker, then he had the discussion about whether or not it's okay and whether or not there's a comparison between that and the N-word. Now, what Bosch actually said on stream was interesting. He goes, look, I'll freely acknowledge I think cracker is a slur. Uh, He said, I also think Karen is a slur. 
And then he says, but I'm still going to use them. <laughs> and he said, be a chat about it. And, uh, you know, effectively, if uh, you're going to get banned for saying it, okay, get banned for saying it. And then he was banned. And so then his response to that was something along the lines of LMAO. So, you know, we kind of thought it was funny. Um, I, I don't sense much hypocrisy on the side of Vosh here. He says, look, terms of service are what they are. They have the, you know, if they want to enforce them as they are, then go right ahead. And I have no issue with it. So he doesn't seem to have an issue with himself being banned. I don't know how long he's banned for. It might be uh, longer than Hassan or maybe indefinitely. I think with Hassan, like I said, I saw that it was a week, but I could be incorrect about that. Um, now, Hassan, on the other hand, is uh, effectively going out there and saying, listen, I think it's bullshit that I was banned. These words are not equivalent. Uh, this doesn't count as a slur. Insofar as this is a slur, so is redneck, so is honky, so is, you know, this, this laundry list of um, other things, and nobody really gets banned for that. Honestly, again, to make the Karen point, it is in a similar category as Cracker, and uh, nobody really gets banned for that. In fact, Elon Musk was just on Twitter calling uh, Senator Warren a cracker, or excuse me, not a cracker, a Karen. He said, don't call the manager on me, Karen, when um, she made the argument, hey, maybe somebody worth about $297 billion should pay more in taxes. So, you know, if if there is some sort of objective enforcement across all the social media platforms, which clearly there's not, and they don't have the same terms of service, but if there was, then somebody would get banned for saying Karen in the same way they'd get banned for saying cracker in the same way they'd get banned for saying the N-word. Now, Um, what's my take on this? Well, perhaps uh, fully none of you are going to be surprised to hear my take on this, which is that I'm a free speech absolutist. And we'll get into the details of that and the complexities of that and what that means in a second, but um, I think it's absurd that they were banned. Um, Now, critics are pointing out, hey, listen, they are not free speech absolutists. So, you know, it's what goes around comes around, chickens coming home to roost type situation. So if they're, you know, cheering on other people getting banned, well, hey, now uh, you got banned. So how you like them apples? To which I respond, um, I am consistent on this. And Vosh was like, hey, if they want to ban me, they can ban me. That's their prerogative. So he's consistent on it as well. But I'm consistent in, on the other side of it where I say, no, they shouldn't get banned. And no, roughly 90% of the people – 80 to 90% of the people who are getting banned for various things, I don't think they should get banned either. So, you know, I've defended right-wing ghouls who I have a lot less in common with than I do with Bosh and Hassan. I've defended right-wing ghouls when they get banned for trying to be an edgelord and saying something dumb. Um, And then you dig into their history and they're massive hypocrites. And, you know, they're cheerleading on bands of lefties, but then when they get banned, it's, oh, my God, my free speech. So I guess the point I'm trying to make here is I don't really care who's a hypocrite and who's not a hypocrite, because the real conversation is what are the standards and and what should happen here? And in my opinion, this isn't even close to ban-worthy. Now, I do think there's obviously a a substantive and historical difference between the N-word, hard hard ER, and cracker. Um, But look, maybe I'll I'll say something controversial here. Maybe this is a Kyle hot take here for everybody. But I don't think you should necessarily get banned for using the N-word. Now, if it's if it's in the context of harassment, well, that's a different conversation. Because even to the biggest free speech absolutist, there are rules. And even with our First Amendment, we're the most free speech absolutist country on paper in the world here in the U.S. And even there, there are certain rules and certain things that you can't say. Um, but if somebody's uh, rapping 
to a rap song on stream and they and they say it. Totally fine. If somebody if somebody's using it as a term of endearment in the black community among the black community one to the other person, I think that's totally fine. Um, obviously, there's a context. There's a difference between hard er and, and soft a. I think these things are uh, phenomenally nuanced. But the most important point is this. I don't think that the conversation is being had in an honest way on the topic of free speech. But usually the sense that you get is the people who are not, quote unquote, free speech absolutists, their position ultimately boils down to, well, let's go on a case by case basis. Like, let's look at each thing on its own and then determine whether or not it's ban worthy. But there's a huge problem with implementing uh, some sort of policy like that. And the problem with that is people wildly disagree about what is subjectively acceptable. So, you know, it, lefties might say, hey, let Cracker go, but ban every, uh, every time somebody says the N-word, whether it's hard ER or soft A, just ban it. And, but then you might have right-wingers who say the exact opposite. Or you might have right-wingers who say, uh, let it all go. And once you open that door to like, well, look at it on a case-by-case basis and, and try to uh, determine what the best path is, um, I think that really is a genuine slippery slope and you're opening Pandora's box and the end result is going to be nowhere near some sort of reasonable standard of what's allowed and what's not allowed. So my overall breakdown on this situation is I would like to see all the big social media outlets become public utilities and then you expand First Amendment protections and the things that you're not allowed to do, you can't do libel, you can't do slander, you can't do doxing, you can't do targeted harassment, you can't do direct threats of violence. But outside of those five general things, you really should be able to say almost whatever you want to say. Now, even implementing uh, an enforcement mechanism like I just laid out, that's not easy. Like, there's still going to be subjective interpretation that goes into it, and like it, there will be some disagreement about what should be allowed and what shouldn't be allowed. But at least you're narrowing the focus in a way that is way more reasonable than the approach that we currently have now, where the different platforms have their different terms of service. And ultimately, what I really think ended up happening here is uh, what I warned would happen once we start going down the path of censorship and banning and, and deplatforming and things of that nature, is that the right-wingers have this victim complex that a lot of their people are getting banned, and they say getting banned unjustly. So what happens is, as a direct result of that, they then launch these campaigns where they say, look, if you're going to start banning people and deplatforming people and censoring people, you at least have to be fair about it and make it equal. And so then they say, well, here's a lefty who's using a racial slur, so you have to ban them. And if you don't, that proves that you're biased against the right. And so the social media platforms are so sensitive to the criticism of like, you're, uh, you know, you have a liberal bias that they're, they can't wait to both sides of the situation and say, no, 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 we're fair. See, we've banned right-wingers, but we've also banned left-wingers. We also banned one of the top Twitch streamers that there is, Hassan Piker, for violating our, our terms of service. So what happens is the right cries bloody murder and plays the victim and says, we're getting banned disproportionately. And so then the, the companies overreact and say, okay, we'll crack down on the left too. And then you get totally unfair bans. But all this was completely predictable because everybody warned you from day one that once you open up this door, there's no closing this door. 
and it's just going to be a band fest, and it's going to be people looking for whatever tiny infraction you could find, and they use that as an excuse. So, I mean, now, when you get into the specific cases, I've talked about this before. Um, in the case of Milo Yiannopoulos, when he got banned from Twitter, I believe it was, I initially thought, well, that's sort of bullshit. He's just a shit poster and an edgelord, and he says terrible things. But then when I uh, read into the situation further, what I found was he actually genuinely committed uh, libel and slander against, I forget the uh, black female SNL um, comedian who he did it to. doesn't matter. But uh, anyway, he faked tweets saying they were hers, tweeted them out to his massive following, and the tweets you know, said wildly like anti-Semitic stuff and terrible stuff and... So he was portraying this woman as saying something that she didn't say. And really, uh, you know, it, it's like a, a defamation type thing, destroying her character, destroying her chance, you know, to have a, a career because nobody would want, would want to work with her, assuming those tweets are true. And so he, it was like a brazen lie that was libelous and slanderous. And so when I read further into that situation with Milo, I was like, oh, I actually understand why he got banned. It had nothing, nothing to do with free speech. He's literally just doing libel and slander. Um, now, the Alex Jones situation... Alex Jones, the, the main thing was the Sandy Hook thing. Okay, so he says it's a hoax. He says it's a conspiracy. He says it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again on his show. And then what happened was psychopaths in his audience took the ball and ran with it, and they sort of looked up the addresses of where the parents lived of the kids who died, and they went and harassed them and said, like, your kids didn't die. Terrible in a thousand different ways. Um, now, he didn't directly say, go do this. He didn't directly give the addresses. He just did the conspiracy stuff. So I genuinely think, as terrible as Alex Jones is, that was like a borderline case in terms of banning. But if you wanted to say, hey, listen, those particular videos or those particular tweets, um, they cross a line and they are libelous, they are slanderous, well, then that's one thing. And I think that's a reasonable take to have. But to effectively give the Internet death penalty, which is what they did, I think that opened up the door uh, to a, a really slippery slope. And we've seen it a thousand times over. Remember the proper not blacklist where – it was all under the guise of we have to fight Russian disinformation, and you had this list come out. Hey, here are all the websites, these news websites, that are not legitimate and that need to be buried in the algorithm. And then they were buried in the algorithm. So, yeah, you got some, some right-wing sites that were in there that were genuinely bad sites that didn't give any real information and weren't doing real news. But then you also had you know, outlets like um, Counterpunch and Alternet and you know, various real genuine anti-imperialist uh, left-wing sites and, um, you know, economically lefty news sites. And I remember covering that and saying, look, this is why, in principle, you have to defend even those who you disagree with. Again, if, if what's going on is libel, slander, doxing, targeted harassment, or direct threats of violence, everybody agrees that that's got to go. But outside of that, on political content alone, you just can't open up this door because without a doubt it's going to swing back around to hurt you and the people you like and the people you care about. And, you know, another great example of it is, okay, so you, uh, people want to ban all, uh, you know, uh, far-right wingers, wh white supremacists, whatever. Well, then immediately after that, they'll scream bloody murder and say, you got to get rid of the tankies. you got to get rid of the Soviet Union apologists. you got to get rid of the, the, you know, the people who glorify like Mao or whatever. Now, you might say, hey, that's a tiny number on the left or whatever. But as a matter of principle, those people have a right to speak unless they're doing libel, slander, doxing, targeted harassment, or direct threats of violence. If they're not doing that, this is what freedom is. Freedom is the ability to say things, even things that could be stupid, dumb, hateful, even bigoted. As long as you're not crossing those very clear lines, then it should be allowed. And so, look, in the case of Hassan and in the case of Vosh, yes, they're open about the fact that they're not free speech absolutists. 
but I am. And I think what they did doesn't remotely come close to an offense that uh, should lead to banning. I, I really don't even think it's a, it's a close call. And the other thing I would say is, for everybody on the right who's like sort of tap dancing on their graves right now, well, you're colossal hypocrites too. Of course you are. Because you guys, the main claim that these guys make is, hey, even when it's somebody you disagree with, you have to stand, you know, in solidarity with them because the principle is more important. Well, here's your opportunity. And instead, what do they go to? Here's a tweet from Hassan where he's against, you know, free speech. Okay, but do you have anything to say about the issue as such, as opposed to the stupid hypocrisy burning, which we can all sit here and do all day? So, listen, it's... If you're on the right, it's a real test of whether or not you believe in the principle. Now, I won't hold my breath because I don't think many of them actually believe in the principle. I think it's just a power game to them. But insofar as you actually care about the issue, you should take a stand when, when it's somebody you disagree with and when it's somebody you uh, agree with. So I think it's totally uh, absurd. And I do think that there's a, fundamentally a difference between the history of the words, you know, cracker versus the N-word, um, but at the same time, like I said, and again, maybe this is my hottest take in this segment, I don't think it should be a, necessarily be a ban anytime somebody uses the N-word. If it's used in the context of targeted harassment, of course, then you can do it. But if it's not used in the context of targeted harassment, I'll even allow that. So um, I don't know how to make it any more plain than I am, but I, I, don't, I don't, I hate it when people just want to play the opinion game and like, well, things are different when people say different things, therefore, let's take it on a case-by-case basis. No, because who the hell should have the power to determine ultimately? You want some random group of Silicon Valley investors, some multimillionaires and billionaires deciding what's allowed and what's not allowed? You want some fact-check administration, which no doubt is going to be filled with people that have their own biases and their own interpretations and their own uh, you know, blind spots? So who's going to fact-check the fact-checkers? Who really is going to ultimately determine here? So I think the least bad of all bad options is uh, regulate these, these companies, these big social media companies, like their public utilities, expand First Amendment protections, um, and basically you have it so that the only things that you can't do are libel, slander, doxing, targeted harassment, and direct threats of violence. And then outside of that, it's, it's all systems go. And, and I will say, the final point on this, that is the actual leftist position. Guys, it's a right-wing position when you say, hey, terms of service are what they are, and a private company can enforce them, so let them do whatever they want. That is, that's, a, that's a capitalist position. That's a right-wing position. That's a, a libertarian position, as in like right-wing libertarian, Ron Paul-style Paul libertarian. Because that idea is, hey, let the private company do whatever they want to do. Lefties don't say that in any other context. Do you say that when it comes to Wall Street? Do you say that when it comes to mil- the military-industrial complex? This like hands-off, let the mini-dictatorship do whatever they want with their own little mini-dictatorship corporation? No, we never say that. The left always says, look, there's got to be reasonable rules and regulations. And in this instance, the reasonable rule and regulation is treat the big social media companies like their public utilities and expand First Amendment protections. That's the actual lefty position. So I just want to put that on the record, too, because people sort of, you know, they take their eye off the ball in this broader conversation. But that's the most important point, is that the real leftist position is regulate them like their public utilities, expand First Amendment protections. The only things you don't allow are libel, slander, doxing, targeted harassment, and direct threats of violence. So anyway, there you have it. Uh, free Hassan Piker, free Bosch. It's absurd that they're banned. And believe me, guys, it's only going to get worse. 
the tiniest infractions you can imagine. It, the infractions will get tinier and tinier and tinier. And as long as anybody claims offense, sincerely or not, people will start getting banned left and right. And so that's not a world I want to live in. If you don't like what you're hearing, just don't watch it. That simple. Not like now I'm going to get them pulled for everybody so everybody else can't even hear them. Deeply, deeply authoritarian, and there's no other word for it. Okay, next. Andrew Cuomo is uh, finally getting his comeuppance, and it is a hilarious thing to see. So Mediaite reports, Andrew Cuomo ordered to return $5.1 million in profits from book deal. Wow. $5.1 million in profits. Um, so it's a, it, there was this ethics committee. In fact, hold on, let me, let me actually go back to the piece. I have, I have more in the piece. Yeah, I have it here. All right, let me start that over. So Andrew Cuomo is finally getting his comeuppance. Um, he, according to media here, He's ordered to return $5.1 million in profits from his book deal. His book where he did a tap dance as if he beat COVID as he was actively making COVID worse. Mediaite says, the Joint Commission on Public Ethics gave Cuomo 30 days to forfeit the income one month after the same watchdog panel voted to revoke its prior ruling allowing Cuomo to earn outside income from his book titled American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. The panel concluded that Cuomo violated stipulations barring him from using state resources, including government-paid staffers, in drafting of the book. The New York Assembly released a report in late November detailing how Cuomo used state resources and staff to write, publish, and promote the book. The report also detailed how the book was being used to spin unfavorable coverage surrounding then-governor and his uh, policies regarding COVID-19 in nursing homes. The report added, we are mindful of ongoing law enforcement issues regarding these issues. Uh, The investigation showed that as they were considering these matters, the book deal was going on. There's a chapter in the book about nursing homes. They were trying to make it, at, make it as what they thought was least damaging to the governor instead of just telling the truth, Assemblymember Phil Steck, a Democrat, told the AP at the time. So um, first of all, the Ethics Committee made a huge uh, error in the first place, allowing him to write this book. But now they're trying to right the wrong by saying, look, you've got to return $5.1 million in profits. Um, from the book, he was instructed, you can't use the staff to uh, write the book. You can't use your government staff to write the book. He did. Um, And also, they're very clear about the fact that he was lying and he was spinning it and he was trying to portray himself in the most positive light, which, of course, he was doing that. But now, in retrospect, it all seems obvious. Here you have a guy who lied about the COVID death rate in New York City, was doing an end zone dance as if he defeated COVID when at the time New York had the worst COVID numbers in the country. He's the one who said, let's send uh, old people back into nursing homes who are COVID positive. And that led to COVID to rip through the nursing homes like wildfire. And who knows how many people died as a direct result of his decision. And so, yeah, of course, this is the right decision. He never should have been allowed to publish that goddamn book in the first place. He was just cashing in on his 15 minutes of fame and, you know, trying to really launch himself uh, into the national scene to potentially run for president at some point. 
Well, it all came crashing down. I mean, the nerve of this guy, the nerve of both the Cuomos, I mean, him and Chris, Chris was, you know, helping Andrew in every way imaginable behind the scenes as he was lying about it publicly. He was doing oppo research on his, on Andrew Cuomo's accusers and all the while playing like he's the ethical guy on TV. When Andrew Cuomo was getting positive press all the time, Chris Cuomo would have him on a show and they'd throw softballs down the center of the plate for him. Soon as the press turned bad, he was like, look, I have an ethical responsibility not to discuss my brother on air. Well, where was that ethical responsibility when you were throwing him softballs down the center of the plate? I mean, these guys are deeply unprofessional, unethical, and pathetic. And, you know, it's never been more obvious. And remember, guys, at the time that uh, Andrew Cuomo was getting those softballs, the fact of the matter is he already had a thousand scandals under his belt that any reasonable person would care about. You know, uh, the anti-corruption committee that he put together, then as soon as that committee started looking into him and his allies, he disbanded the committee. I mean, what does that say? It says, where there's smoke, there's fire, and he knew that, you know, don't look into me. I don't want you to find out where the bodies are buried. One of Andrew Cuomo's top aides is literally in prison for corruption. Then you have the bridge scandal, where they used the wrong, um, you know, supplies on the bridge that he named after his father, by the way, and then they try to cover it up after the fact. Well, that could have been a safety issue. So, I mean, the guy was never fit for office. He was never cut out for it. And look, what do you expect when you have deep, deep nepotism? Because that's what it is. The reason why Andrew we even know who Andrew Cuomo is or Chris Cuomo is because their father, Mario Cuomo, was governor of New York. And he was, uh, by the way, a much more popular one (laughs) than, than Andrew Cuomo ended up being. And so nepotism central is why Andrew became governor. Nepotism central is why Chris even got on TV. And they blew it in a thousand different ways. Never mind all the, you know, the Me Too stuff, which uh, helped bring him down in a, in a direct way. But it is delicious that he's got to return that $5.1 million because who knows if he even has it at this point. <laughs> he probably went out and spent most of that. Um, I don't know. I mean, this is up there, right? Some of the biggest falls from grace, maybe there was John Edwards when he was cheating on his wife who had cancer. There was a huge fall from grace there. But outside of John Edwards, this is one of the biggest falls from grace that I've ever seen in political history. And it's something to watch. Okay. Next. Jeremy Corbyn weighed in on the vaccine mandate debate. This is really interesting to me. He, of course, was was the leader of the Labor Party. Um, He's no longer the leader anymore. But he's going to lay out here what he thinks is the left position on vaccine mandates. Let me ask you about the votes that are coming. You're, you're obviously you're still an MP. Um, are you going to be voting to introduce uh, COVID certification at, at large events? Um, I don't think it's a particularly good idea. And I, what I want to see is a process where we are asking people to recognize the severity and dangers of COVID, but you achieve far more in public health by cooperation and persuasion than you do by compulsion. I'm worried about the direction of travel we're going to with COVID passports. Um, And then uh, the danger, which I see as quite serious, of compulsory vaccination of NHS staff. Testing is an appropriate way of doing things. I mean, you, you do a temperature check when people come in here. Most people do that kind of thing. That seems to me to be fair enough. 
I was in a, a, a care home on Friday. I went to a 100th birthday party of one of my constituents, and uh, it was a very small party. It was socially distanced, etc. don't worry. Um, and everyone was asked to take a test before they went in. That seemed to me reasonable. It's a very vulnerable population. You don't then think that when this vote happens later in the week, I think around vaccination, compulsory vaccination for NHS staff, strikes me that you're dead against that. I'm, I am against compulsory vaccination. I think it's reasonable that staff should be tested. I think people ought to be vaccinated and take up the opportunity to do it. But once you go down the road of compulsion, what do you do with the people that refuse to take a vaccination? Do you then dismiss them from working in the NHS? They obviously work in the NHS because they, they love it, they believe it, and they support it. And you then go down a road of what? Criminalising people? This is a very dodgy road to go down. Why do you think, and again you can say ask him, but why do you think then that Labour under Sir Keir Starmer are going to vote this through? I think they believe that it is the responsible thing to do. I believe the responsible thing to do is to challenge this Prime Minister and his incompetence, and I believe the responsible thing to do is persuade people of the need for caution to ensure the, the um, COVID doesn't if spread. If you were leading the Labour Party, you would definitely encourage, tell, whip your, your MPs to vote against this. Because you, I mean, I, I remember, but I was sitting in number 10 at the time. In, 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 you were. Yeah, in, you must have loved every minute of it. It was, uh, it was an interesting time. Um, but they, and, and you would get your MPs, get the party to vote against pretty much everything. That, that to you was opposition, right? That yes. was how opposition conducted itself. They, they literally opposed everything the government suggested. Well, you oppose things that you believe to be wrong. And actually, quite a lot of stuff goes through Parliament unopposed, actually, as you, as you know. But you oppose things you believe to be wrong. And I believe the government's handling of, the, of COVID has been appalling and incompetent beyond belief. And I do think they have to be challenged much more strongly. And the Prime Minister, um, well, never mind his personal behaviour with parties and all the rest of it, his incompetence over the handling of COVID is unbelievable. I think he strikes the exact right balance here. Now, the response to this I'm seeing is interesting. There are people who are just portraying this as um, Jeremy Corbyn is against a vaccine mandate. That's not a fair summation of his position. He very clearly says vaccine or test. So if you're not going to take the vaccine, okay, but it's totally reasonable that you be tested. That is literally the Biden position, that a lot of the same people who are cheering on what Corbyn says here, they were slamming Biden for saying effectively the exact same thing. And they were acting like the Biden position was a vaccine mandate, full stop. No, a vaccine mandate is take the vaccine and you have no other option. Biden's position was take the vaccine or take a test. That's the exact same thing that Jeremy Corbyn is saying here. Now, to be fair, Jeremy Corbyn is saying this even in the context of working in a, in a high-risk field, namely the NHS. That's their universal health care system. Um, and I think Biden's position is if you work in a high-risk field, you should have to get vaccinated full stop. But if you work in a non-high-risk field and it's a business of 100 employees or more, then it's vaccinate or test. But either way, the principle that we're talking about here is the same thing, namely that Jeremy Corbyn is clearly against a hard vaccine mandate but he is in favor of giving people the choice, an option, a soft mandate. So it's either vaccinate or it's perfectly reasonable that you have to take a test if you don't want to vaccinate. So the reason why I love this clip is because that 
other than the original Biden plan, this is the honestly the first person I've seen in the discourse agree with what my position is. Um, because what's happening now on the left is very strange. You have some people who are just in favor of a hard vaccine mandate. And also my hunch is the people who are in favor of a hard vaccine mandate are not willing to acknowledge that that's also literally an authoritarian policy where you're saying, do this or else. It's like, or else what? What are you going to find them? What are you going to put them in prison? Like, what are you going to do? Make them lose their job? Um, I'm uncomfortable with that hard vaccine mandate. I think that is not really uh, balancing a left vision well and leftist ideals well, because what you're dealing with here is it is a paradox because as lefties, we care deeply about both the individual and the community and the collective. And so you have to try to strike a balance between um, the rights and, and the free choice of the individual, but also the, the concern for the collective. And the only way I can think to split the difference there is vaccine or test. So it, it's sort of the, way, the least bad option where we can um, satiate both proper and correct instincts, the instinct for individual choice and individual rights, but also for the well-being of the collective. So again, I, I love this. I think he absolutely nailed it. I, his position is exactly like my position. And in fact, he actually shifted me slightly because previously I think I would have said, I'm actually okay with a hard vaccine mandate in um, high-risk fields like nursing homes or, or the healthcare system. But I mean, when he said like, well, what are you going to do with these people if they don't get it? That sort of landed with me. And so I think that now my position is uh, vaccine or test, and uh, it's across the board. It's for everybody, uh, even, in the, even in the high-risk fields. And, and I also agree with his point on persuasion. Now, that's the thing. So either lefties have been for, to get back to the point I was trying to make before when I cut myself off, either I've seen lefties either for a hard vaccine mandate, but they won't acknowledge it's authoritarian, um, or they're against mandates, but then there's a lot of lefties who are like weirdly flirting with just anti-vax stupidity. Now, maybe they don't go as far as like the, it's a microchip or whatever, like the dumbest conspiracies, but there's plenty of like, let me pick out anecdotes about the vaccine being bad or misrepresent a non-peer-reviewed study about the vaccine being bad and then like raise skepticism about the vaccine while also simultaneously claiming, I'm not raising skepticism about the vaccine, I'm pro-vaccine. So it's weird. I don't think there are many on the left that I've seen, in my estimation, who are striking that proper balance. And Jeremy Corbyn is the first to really do that in the discourse, in my opinion, which is why I love this clip so much. Again, so I agreed with what Biden did. And I think it was wildly misrepresented by the media and by people on the left and by virtually everybody. And everybody was claiming it was a vaccine mandate. It was not a vaccine mandate. It was vaccine or test, and it's for businesses with 100 employees or more. I probably would have done it for just businesses, period, so all businesses. Um, but that was a reasonable policy. Now, the Fifth Circuit Court did slap that down, but I, I told you guys my prediction on that is when it goes to a higher court, it will either be upheld, so they'll allow the policy to go forward, the OSHA policy to go forward, uh, or what they'll say is, look, we're going to strike it down, but it's not inherently unconstitutional. If Congress were to pass a law that says the same thing, then it would be allowed. So in other words, they're not just going to, because the Supreme Court has actually routinely sided with hard vaccine mandates, not even just the soft ones that I'm calling for, the choice, the vaccine or testing that I'm calling for and that Biden was in favor of. So my guess is what the Fifth Circuit Court said will be overturned 
Um, and, but I don't know if it'll be we're just going to allow it or if it'll be we're going to slap it down, but Congress can do the same thing and it would be okay. So I don't know which path, but I guarantee you it's going to be one of those two things. They're not just going to uphold it and say you can't do it full stop. There will be a path where you could still do it. Because, again, we're going to get to a story later in this show about um, the Supreme Court making another decision on vaccine mandates. And it might surprise a lot of you. Because it's the exact thing that I was telling everybody about from the beginning. I mean, there's case law going back to 1905 where they were like, hard vaccine mandates are fine. So we got another case that's uh, going to surprise you. But, look, ultimately, I think Corbyn nails it here. The proper leftist position, in my estimation, balancing individual rights and choice with the collective well-being and the community well-being is vaccinate or test and simultaneously, yes, use the power of persuasion to try to get as many people as possible to get the vaccine. And this is an anti-authoritarian approach where you do as good as you possibly can for both the collective and the individual. And I just love that. So now the job is just, you know, convince people based on the merits. And I think that is relatively easy. And it would be nice if there were people on the right who weren't wild anti-vaxxers and people on the left who weren't flirting with anti-vax stuff. But I always come back to the same point, a couple points, actually, which is that French study of over 20 million people where vaccines reduced severe illness, hospitalization and death by 90 percent. That was study of over 20 million people. That is as concrete and solid as humanly possible, man. So it works full stop. It works. Um, and then the other point is, like I always say, even if you grant the anti-vaxxers everything in that VAERS program, which is like, here's the adverse side effects of the vaccine, then you can report it. Even if you grant them everything in there, and to be clear, I don't, but even if you do grant them everything in there, you still should get the vaccine. Because the number, the, the number of side effects, illness, death, problems associated with the vaccine, even under the worst possible scenario from the harshest anti-vaxxer, still is way less than the 800,000 U.S. deaths and over 5 million worldwide deaths. And at that point, it's just a matter of doing math. What are the benefits and what are the risks of taking the vaccine versus what are the benefits and what are the risks of just getting COVID? And when it's math, the beautiful thing about math is it's not open to subjective interpretation. It is what it is. And when you look at those numbers and crunch those numbers, it's not even fucking close. You get the vaccine. So, anyway, there you have it. Credit to Jeremy Corbyn. And I hope more lefties take this exact same position. Okay. This clip is hilarious to me. Ben Shapiro was talking about Build Back Better and Joe Biden and how, oh my God, this is going to add to the deficit and it's so bad and what about inflation? And So he's talking about all these things and at the end of the clip, uh, he makes an awesome comparison. Watch. They're always looking for an excuse to do the thing they wanted to do anyway. So anytime something bad happens in life, this administration immediately jumps to, we need more regulation and we need more top-down control. COVID, more regulation, more top-down control. A tornado in Kentucky, more regulation, more top-down control. It's always the same solution. If you went to a doctor and no matter what symptoms you complained of, he offered you morphine, you might start to think that maybe the guy was a drug pusher. Well, that is what you've got right now. You've got a government that is offering the same solution to every problem. So either you believe that this solution really is the gold standard, the all-purpose solution, or it turns out that these people are just pushing an addictive drug of spending and regulation, regardless of the, of, of 
the first part of the statement. Regardless of the contingency, the solution is always the same. This is the most obvious case of projection I've ever seen. Because it's the Republicans who have the same answer to absolutely everything. And what is their answer? I don't even need to say it. A lot of you can think of it right off the top of your head. Deregulation, more tax cuts. And by the way, when they say tax cuts, if you look at their actual proposals, it's more tax cuts for the wealthy than for working people. No matter what the problem is, deregulate, so cut the red tape, and more tax cuts. That's always their answer. So everything he says there that the Democrats are guilty of, it's actually the Republicans that are guilty of it. And by the way, on the side of the Democrats, I don't even know what he's talking about, claiming that Biden says we need more regulation, more top-down control. Like what? Give me an example. By the way, the conversation here is about build back better. How is that more regulation? That's not more regulation. It's not even more top-down control. It's bottom-up control, you could argue, because the provisions in there are 60, 70, 80% supported. So universal pre-K, universal child care, expanding Medicare. That's more bottom-up than top-down because it's what the people actually want. And how is that regulation? That's not regulation. That's the government providing basic services with our tax money. That's the government actually representing the American people. But I love the morphine thing. The morphine thing is wonderful. First of all, morphine, based as fuck. (laughs) Anybody who's ever had an injury and gone to the hospital had morphine was like, shit, this stuff works. I feel amazing even though my leg is broken. Second of all, if it's Democrats who are pushing morphine and that's their answer to everything, well, pushing morphine as an answer to everything is way better than what the Republicans are pushing, which is snake oil. Your answer to everything is snake oil. And that does Dickie McGee's act. That does nothing substantively. I would much rather have morphine than I would a a, a genuine, true painkiller than I would snake oil, which is just a scam product, which doesn't address anything. The rest of the segment, he talks about um, Build Back Better, and he keeps conflating this with, oh, my God, inflation, inflation, inflation. That's an amazing sleight of hand on the part of Ben Shapiro because people's default assumption, mine included, when I originally started looking into this problem, is that, oh, my God, it must have been the COVID relief packages and the big spending which is leading to inflation. Well, the more I ask economists and experts and people actually know what they're talking about, about what the root problem of inflation is, the more they told me it has nothing to do with the spending bills. It has everything to do with the supply chain. So as a direct result of COVID, as a direct result of these monumental shifts in the economy, where people are staying home and ordering way more online, um, the economy wasn't ready to handle that. And so between PPE being delivered to various countries and clogging the ports and online orders massively increasing clogging the ports uh, and not having enough drivers because basically the drivers are indentured servants. We know that from some great investigative reporting that came out a while ago. Crystal Ball did a great piece on that. Um, You have not enough goods. So the problem is on the good side of the equation. So what's one way to address that? One way to address that is is bring back American manufacturing so that you have more goods. So that's one thing. The other thing is we've covered stories. Um, Walmart's one great example, but there are many others as well. Now corporations are using inflation as an excuse to jack prices, even for goods that uh, the price actually isn't going up. That's why corporate profits right now are at a record high. So he's just being lazy and sloppy, or he's lying on purpose when he's acting like the big spending is leading to inflation. That's just not true. Don't take my word for it. You go do your own fact-checking and reading about it, and you'll find out very quickly 
This is what every expert is saying. It has way more to do with, number one, the supply chain and the problems in the supply chain, and number two, with corporations taking advantage of the fear-mongering over inflation to jack prices anyway and boost profits. Okay, now to get to the – you didn't see this part in the clip, but he talked about it earlier in the clip. All, oh, my God, the deficit, the deficit, the deficit, the big spending. Ben Shapiro enthusiastically supported the Trump tax cuts, which added trillions of dollars to the deficit. So notice, and did he say a word when we spent 7 to $8 trillion on the military budget? By the way, weird. Whenever they talk about Build Back Better, everybody projects it over a 10-year period. And they say, oh, it's a $3.5 trillion bill, or now $1.9 trillion bill or whatever. That's for a decade. That's for a decade. But when we talk about the military bill, they narrow the window to a year, so it sounds less scary. $768 billion. So notice the, the, the slights of hand and the way they rig the conversation to make certain things appear more reasonable and certain things to appear insane. They want any social spending for the actual people in this country to appear pie in the sky, insane, ridiculous, price tag too large, and they want all the military spending to appear perfectly reasonable and on the up and up. It's not. It's the exact opposite. So the real amount over a 10-year period, if we're going to do an apple established comparison, is 7 to $8 trillion on the military. Did Ben Shapiro say a goddamn word about how are we going to pay for it and what about the deficit? No. Because in his mind, he says, look, you know, this is a moral necessity. What are we going to do? National defense is very important. You know what else is important, Ben? Child care. You know what else is important? Universal pre-K. You know what else is important? Expanding Medicare so more people have health care. Dental, vision, hearing coverage. That is a moral necessity. That is an ethical necessity. You don't think so. You'd rather fearmonger over that and talk about the deficit, this abstract problem, than talk about the real lives impacted by a bill that would help them tremendously. So, I, like, anytime anybody bitches about the deficit, if they've never said a word about the deficit in regards to tax cuts for the wealthy, if they've never said a word about the deficit in regards to the military, immediately dismiss anything they're saying about the debt and the deficit. Because it is, it is a trick, or at the very least, they have fallen for the same trick, and they parrot it like lemmings. Because it's not a real concern. It's just an attempt to stymie any movement in the right direction by raising any objection you possibly can. For the love of God, Joe Manchin, who's standing in the way now, of course, he's a Republican who is a Democrat in name, um, he was like, oh, my God, I can't look at this, how much it adds to the deficit. We can't do this Build Back Better bill. Now, previously he gave his word, we're going to do the Build Back Better bill. Then he's like, okay, I, it's in, inflation, deficit, something. He's saying, oh, my God, it adds so much to the deficit, we can't do it. He just voted for the traditional infrastructure bill, which added over $200 billion to the deficit. So what are you talking about? You obviously don't have a concern about the deficit. You just voted for something. That adds to the deficit. They are liars. They are scumbags. They are scammers. They are charlatans. In the case of Joe Manchin, he's serving his donors. In the case of Ben Shapiro, his whole job as a right-wing commentator is to defend the status quo and effectively protect these same corporations. And he trots out these idiotic arguments like, leftism is morphine. First of all, no, it's not. Second of all, even if it was based, and that's a lot better than snake oil, which is what you're selling. Okay. Let me take a break. When we get back, Greg Gutfeld goes after um, student loan debt elimination, and it is absolutely hilarious. Stay right there.
Son of a bitch. All right, y'all. I am back. I am back like Jack. All right, here we go. I'm going to throw in a random-ass segment here because I can't help myself. Haven't even read the article yet, but we'll do it together. During my little break here, um, I went on Twitter and saw the following article in The Hill. Quote, Hillary 2024? Given the competition, she may be the Dems' best hope. Bro, I can't do it anymore. I don't. I'm about to go into retirement at age 33. This is I can't. All right, let me read some of this to you. This is my first time reading it, by the way. I had only seen the headline to this point. There may be a rematch coming in 2020 in the 2024 race for the White House, but we're not talking. God help us, Biden Trump too. I love how this person, whoever wrote this dumb article, we already know it's dumb because of the premise of it, Joe Concha. He's a, he, by the way, he's a conservative, and he's on Fox News all the time. Um, how, are, how are you with it enough to know that Biden versus Trump, too, is a nightmare, but you don't think Hillary versus Trump, too, is a nightmare? Boundingly dumb. Okay, let's continue. Instead, 2016 Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton is an interesting prospect to consider when looking for a viable candidate, particularly if an 80-something President Biden decides not to seek a second term. And why would he? Just 22% of voters want him to seek a second term. Uh, it doesn't get much better when polling only Democrats were just 36% want to see the president run again. With that juggernaut candidate named someone else coming in first with 44% support. You're citing all the bad poll numbers for Biden. Hillary also has terrible poll numbers. Now, maybe they're higher than Biden's. But the second she starts to publicly speak, they will plummet. And also, on what planet is she a viable or good candidate when all she does is lose? All she does is lose, 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 no matter what. That's what she does. By the way, don't, like, this article might not be like, oh, I'm going to give what I think is good advice. He's, this guy's a conservative. So he's probably trying to say, yeah, why don't you guys run Hillary? That's a great idea. <laughs> knowing that Trump would be a favorite again in a rematch versus Hillary. Okay. The Democratic bench is about as deep as the New York Jets these days. Vice President Harris, she's a 28% approval rating. True. Former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, no longer governor and thoroughly disgraced. True. California Governor Gavin Newsom, he had to spend major time and resources just to avoid being ousted in a deep blue California during a recall election earlier this year. True. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, not even 40%. And he has a supply chain crisis on his resume. Senator Bernie Sanders, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Cory Booker. If those are the options, why not Hillary? Because we hate her, and she stands for nothing, and uh, none of her ideas would substantively improve the country. She's just a repeat of Bill Clinton, and a repeat of Barack Obama, and a repeat of Joe Biden, namely a neoliberal corporatist who barely wants to even do tweaks around the edges at a time where we need a brand new FDR to usher in a New Deal era to bring about policies that really facilitate a better country and give people a fighting chance, universal health care, free college, eliminating student loan debt, child care, elder care. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. Universal basic income. That's why. That's why. Do I even need to read any more of this article? 
I'll read a little bit more for everybody. Hillary's 74 years old, which is like being bathed in the fountain of youth compared to Biden, and she's still stunned five years later that she actually lost to Donald Trump. In fact, she sounds no different than Trump in constantly complaining about all the reasons she lost and that, well, the election was stolen by Trump and the Russians anyway. Yeah, that's a reason to have her not run again, not to have her run again. That type of rhetoric is a big no-no for Trump, but A-OK if Hillary or Stacey Abrams does it. Rules are rules. Are we going to give in to all these lies and this disinformation and this organized effort to undermine our rule of law and our institutions, or are we going to stand up to it? Clinton recently warned regarding the possibility of Trump taking back the White House. And yes, that's a real possibility. Several recent polls have Trump topping Biden in the hypothetical 2024 contest, which is stunning considering that the Democrat received more votes last year than any other presidential candidate in American history, 81 million. Yeah, any other presidential candidate in American history except Biden. That seems like an important counterpoint. One more possible sign that Hillary is dipping her toe in the 2024 pool comes in the form of her bizarre decision to read her 2016 victory speech for something called Masterclass. It was one of the most cringeworthy things you'll ever see. Alongside this shitty article that you wrote, Joe Concha, here we have a former first lady, senator, secretary of state, and Democratic presidential nominee reading a speech for an election she lost. Of course, if the New York Times gave me an 85% chance of winning an election, I somehow lost to a guy who had never run for public office before, I'd have trouble absorbing it too. But eventually, one would think Hillary, more than five years later, would show some class, some humility, some maturity, and not talk about it so often anymore. Yeah, so why are you suggesting she run if you're listing all these things that she does that are terrible and stupid and wrong? Instead, here she is, a losing candidate reading a five-year-old victory speech, and in case you're asking if any losing presidential candidate had done anything like that before, the answer is no. Okay. Um, This goes on. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Here's my conclusion on it. Joe Concha is not seriously giving advice as to, hey, this might work for the Democrats. No, he's a conservative. He's a Republican. So what he's doing is he's saying, hey, why don't you guys run this one? Because you'll be better off. Huh? When in reality, he knows that she's a phenomenally weak candidate. And I think Hillary would fare just as well as Biden in a second run, or maybe slightly better, or maybe slightly worse, but it's similar because they stand for the same thing. And they're both disliked. So... And he runs through the list of the potential people who might run or who are, you know, considered. Now, here's the reality. Our best bet, the best bet to stop a Trump second term is um, somebody coming out of nowhere, some Democratic senator or governor who's half decent coming out of nowhere, who's both charismatic and likable and half decent on policy. So, like, my, my big hope, and maybe it's pathetic because I know that as soon as these people open their mouths, as soon as I go through their voting record with a fine-tooth comb, I'll find four or five things I hate. But my big hope is that either uh, Warnock or John Ossoff, um, one of those two, is doable. That sounded vaguely sexual and weird. Is acceptable. Um, is not bad on policy. And look, they're from a traditionally red state, and they're not, they haven't gone full Joe Manchin. They haven't gone full Kirsten Cinema, which is a great sign, okay? But one of them... Maybe you hope you give Sherrod Brown some Adderall and try to make him twice as interesting, and then maybe he has a chance and he's not terrible on policy. Uh, but our only hope is an 08-type scenario where somebody sort of comes out of nowhere. Obama sort of came out of nowhere in 08. Um, he had a little bit of a public profile because of a speech he'd given in 04, but in 08 he did sort of come out of nowhere, and everybody was already anointing Hillary, and Obama took him down. That's what we have to hope for the next election with some out-of-nowhere Democrat who's charismatic and half-decent on policy. So, uh, But... Uh, Shit, the idea of Hillary again. I had PTSD just reading the title. 
Okay. Next. Greg Gutfeld uh, went berserk over student debt elimination. This is hilarious. After he announced the White House, the White House has no plans to extend the current pause on federal student loan repayments. I have over $17,000 in student loan debt. We have a moral obligation, an economic obligation, a political obligation to cancel student loan debt. I worked full time Monday through Friday and took weekend classes to get my law degree and still close to $200,000 in debt. You know what? Screw you. No one has to pay your damn debt. That's on you. It is not a moral obligation on anybody for the decisions that you make. Hell, why don't we do this? You know what's better? Forget the student loan. I just saw that. I'm sorry. Why not do car loan debt, Dagan? Because you know what? That's more egalitarian. They probably, you know, AOC probably doesn't have a car in New York, right? She doesn't need one, or she has a driver. I bet that driver has car loan debt. Why don't we do car loan debt? That's probably about 17 grand too. That's more for the working class than for these overeducated, over-caffeinated idiots. And yeah. The idea that student loan debt elimination is not for the working class is the dumbest myth I've heard in a while, and it's actually a very pervasive myth. They did a poll recently. 89% of people with student loan debt are not financially secure enough to start paying it back on February 1st, which is when they want to bring it back. 89%. So uh, does that sound like they come from wealthy families or they're personally wealthy if 89% of them can't afford to start making the payments again? The idea that it's not for the working class is absurd. Now, by the way, you want to talk about um, car loan debt elimination? Based. I'm open to that conversation. That's reasonable to me. I see nothing wrong with that. I mean, we have such a terrible public transportation system in this country, and so people are reliant on cars. And so um, it seems like a perfectly reasonable thing for the commons to be involved in, for the public to be involved in. I'd much rather have my money go towards that than go towards endless wars then go towards bailing out Wall Street to the tune of trillions of dollars, then go towards oil subsidies for ExxonMobil and Chevron. So based, I'm willing to have that conversation. Of course, he's saying that facetiously. He's not in favor of eliminating either one. But notice something. I've never seen Greg Gutfeld get that mad over an illegal war or drone bombings killing innocent people or corruption. He got the most fired up at the idea of eliminating student loan debt. That's what got him the most fired up that I think I've ever seen. Imagine having your morality and your ethics and your worldview that warped, where that's where you save your anger and your energy for. That's the topic that gets you going, that lights a fire in your belly. Let me give everybody a little bit, little bit of context here. So not only am I in favor of student loan debt elimination, I'm also in favor of rolling student loan debt elimination, so free college, or I'd be in favor of a free college bill, um, a standalone free college bill on its own. Uh, just put this in perspective for everybody. In Brazil, there's no tuition for college. Germany, college is free. Finland covers room and board. France, no tuition, but they charge a whopping $200. Norway, uh, Norwegian students, including foreigners studying in the country, do not have to pay any tuition. Slovenia, no tuition. Sweden, free college. 
This idea that comes from these people who love to scream that the U.S. is number one in the world, and then you say, hey, can we do a basic thing that catches us up to the rest of the developed world? And they're like, no, we can't do that. That's crazy. Fuck off. God, I hate these people so much. Stop trying to make people feel insane for wanting the absolute basic bare minimum. And that's what they do. That's Fox News' whole existence is to do that. Pretend like they're for the working class and then turn around and slap down every idea that would help the working class. Oh, God, it's so gross. I hate it so much. By the way, to extend what they're saying here to its illogical conclusion, do these guys want to scrap the public um, high school education we have in this country? What about uh, middle school? What about elementary school? It's the same principle, right? So you could easily say, hey, take out a loan to go to middle school. What's wrong with you? Oh, you owe money for going to middle school? Well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's on you, son. No, everybody looks at, in this country, everybody looks at elementary school, middle school, and high school as like, well, what are you talking about? That's the public, that we pay taxes, and the taxes go to that, and that's a reasonable thing we want taxes to go towards because we want the next generation to be educated, of course. But with the logic that they're using, why wouldn't they also scream about, hey, pay for your own high school, pay for your own middle school, pay for your own elementary school. Oh, you have debt? Well, that's on you. You take care of that on your own, goddammit. So it's so arbitrary. Your anger is so arbitrary. I think none of that should be privatized. Um, Pre-K, kindergarten, elementary school, middle school, high school, and college should all be free at the point of service, paid for by taxes, instead of us funding endless wars, 900 military bases, multi-trillion dollar Wall Street bailouts, and every other dumb thing that we fund with our money, with our corrupt government. Now, please, go cosplay again and tell me how you're fighters for the working class and blue-collar people, when every single policy you advocate for is to stab those people in the back and twist the knife. Greg Gutfeld. Oh, man. Total hack. So now, let's talk about this amazing story in the Daily, in the daily Poster. If you wanted some sense of just how screwed our system is at the moment, look at this new report from the Daily Poster from David Sirota, Julia Rock, and Andrew Perez. Worker protection bill blocked before tornado disaster. Lawmakers and corporate lobbyists stymied legislation to protect employees' jobs when they flee an unsafe workplace. So let me break this down for you. There was a candle factory in Kentucky where a bunch of people died while they were in the factory while it got hit with a tornado. They were told, look, you can't leave. They make candles for Bath and Body Works, by the way. They were told, you can't leave. You guys got to work. There was a tornado coming right for them. They were told, look, you can't leave. Okay. Amazon, same thing. Amazon in Illinois. Tornado coming for them. We have text messages between somebody who died and his girlfriend, and he says, Amazon won't let us leave. Let me repeat that. Amazon won't let us leave. Okay, not to be hyperbolic here, not to be insensitive here, but if text messages existed back in the plantation days, that's like something you'd see a slave say. Massa won't let us leave won't let us leave. There's a tornado warning or watch, and it's coming right at you. They won't let us leave. All right. 
So let me read you uh, some of this article here. They say, in the months before workers were reportedly barred from abandoning their job site or threatened with termination if they fled this weekend's deadly tornadoes, corporate lobbying groups were fighting legislation to prohibit retribution against employees who seek to leave work out of fear for their safety. Amazon, which owns a warehouse where several workers were killed, and its staffing firm have links to corporate lobbying groups that have been opposing the legislation, which remains stalled. NBC News reported Monday that workers at a Kentucky candle factory were told by superiors they, they could be fired if they fled their workplace as a powerful storm approached. In Illinois, one Amazon worker who died reportedly texted his girlfriend beforehand, Amazon won't, Amazon won't let us leave, that's what I just explained. At least eight workers were subsequently killed at the Mayfield Consumer Products Candle Factory in Kentucky, while six workers were killed in the Illinois disaster at Amazon, whose warehouses have been plagued by deadly cataclysms and allegations of hazardous conditions. Sometimes uh, no heating, sometimes no air conditioning, sometimes extended uh, work hours of people fainting. As in most other states, corporate interests have preserved at-will employment laws in both Kentucky and Illinois that allow employers to fire workers for no cause. But earlier this year, Illinois lawmakers introduced legislation to protect workers from such firings unless an employer had just cause for for a termination. The Illinois bill, called the Illinois Employee Security Act, explicitly states that a just cause for firing does not include an employee's refusal to work under conditions that the employee reasonably believes would expose him or her, other employees, or the public to an unreasonable health or safety risk. The legislation, which has 15 sponsors, would join Illinois with Montana as the only two states with a just cause law. However, the bill was criticized by the powerful Chicago Land Chamber of Commerce, according to the Chicago Sun-Times, and it was formally opposed by the Illinois Chamber of Commerce. Both organizations list Amazon as a member Amazon also disclosed donating last year to Illinois Retail Merchants Association, another organization opposing the same measure according to state records. In other words, to make this as simple as possible, lawmakers were drafting legislation that says, hey, if you feel like if you stay at work, your health is threatened, you're allowed to leave. And the Chamber of Commerce and business interests and lobbyist groups came in and said, "Eh, not so fast, we're gonna block that, we're gonna stall that, we don't want that legislation. So in other words, the business interests said, we want your workplace to be a ruthless dictatorship where if your boss says something, you have to listen, no questions asked. And it got, the legislation was stalled. And so people in these situations didn't have the legal right to leave. They just wanted to leave. They were threatening losing their job. They, were, they could have lost their job if they left. And as a result, some people died. Don't tell me we don't need gargantuan reforms in this system between overtime laws, lack of paid paternity leave, maternity leave, um, lack of paid vacation time by law, lack standards when it comes to health and safety. I mean, you would be surprised at how few rules there are on the books that really protect workers. And we've seen it with a number of the, the situations unfolding recently, whether it's Kellogg's firing all their striking union workers and trying to bring in scabs, whether it's the, the um, I think it's what, the Nabisco factory that we covered the, the protests, the strike at where, you know, people were being overworked and they had to work six out of seven days and their shifts would be freakishly long and some people fainted on, on site and some people died from literally being exhausted and overworked and they, uh, they were, weren't barely getting any raises at all, wasn't keeping up with the pace of inflation. 
and this was at a time of record profits. The list goes on and on. Look, you can't just let the businesses do whatever they want to do because they absolutely default to exploitation, to let's pad the bottom line and fuck the workers. They're just, they're basically property. There are consequences to all this, and sometimes it's death. So this is just an absolute nightmare in a thousand different ways. We need a national law that says this. I mean, it's crazy we don't already have a law that says this. If I had asked you beforehand, look, could you leave work if there's a disaster, if there's a crisis, if there's something that puts your safety at risk? Are you allowed to leave work regardless of what your boss says? I think a lot of people would say, maybe, yeah, I think that'd be fair. Not the case. Not the case. So look, I come full circle back to the old Chomsky point. In this country... We venerate the idea of political democracy. That's viewed as the enlightened position, political democracy. We all care about democracy and freedom. But then where we spend most of our waking time in the workplace, we have ruthless dictatorships, where it's not a democracy. You have to listen to whatever your boss says. There's a fundamental contradiction there. And, you know, look, is this really all that different from feudalism? We like to think, oh, we've evolved so much. If where you're spending most of your waking time, you're just told what to do. They say jump, you say how high. Have we really evolved that much past feudalism? And who are we to say we're not going to evolve further into something significantly better than this? I think we are, and I think we should, and I think we need to, and stories like this really highlight that. Okay. All right, next. Business Insider did a five-month investigation into basically all of the D.C. politicians, and they found some incredible stuff. Credit to them for doing this hard work, because it really is hard work. Now, um, what they found is that a gigantic number of congresspeople are violating what's called the Stock Act. Now, what is the Stock Act? Well, it was passed in 2012. It was designed to combat insider trading among people in the Senate and people in the House of Representatives, elected officials. It was signed into law by Obama. On April 4th, 2012, the law prohibits the use of non-public information for private profit, including insider trading by members of Congress and other government employees. It confirms changes to the Commodity Exchange Act, and it specifies reporting intervals for financial transactions. So here's the gist of it. I'll give you a quote from it. A member, officer, or employee of the Senate shall not receive any compensation, nor shall he permit any compensation to accrue to his beneficial interest from any source, the receipt or accrual of which would occur by virtue of influence improperly exerted from his position as a member, officer, or employee. It's very clear. That's very clear. So in other words, look, you're allowed to own stocks, but it damn well better be something you have no legislative control over whatsoever. Um, So that's the gist of it. And then if you do, you shouldn't, but if you do, you absolutely have to report it. That's the other aspect of it. Okay, so... Um, Now let me show you the reality of the situation. In Business Insider, members of Congress with potential conflicts. So look at the bottom right there. The green are people who are solid. They're not in violation of the Stock Act. 214 Democrats, not in violation of the Stock Act. 192 Republicans, not in violation of the Stock Act. One independent, not in violation of the Stock Act. Borderline cases. 50 Democrats borderline in violation, 63 Republicans, borderline in violation, one independent borderline in violation. 
outright in violation. Uh, you have five Democrats, eight Republicans, zero independents. Now, let me just say real quick, the borderline cases I don't think are borderline based on my reading of the situation. I think that they're clearly in violation, or at the very least, the things they're doing are borderline illegal, but it definitely shouldn't be borderline. It 100% should be illegal. Okay, so let me show you more. Here are the worst ones. These lawmakers have violated the Stop Trading on Congressional Knowledge Act of 2012 by failing to properly disclose financial trades, many to a significant degree. Some also employ senior staff members who violated the Stock Act or haven't themselves taken protect, proactive steps to avoid potential conflicts of interest. So here you see some of them, Lance Gooden, Diane Feinstein, um, Tom Malinowski, Susie Lee, Chris Jacobs, Kevin Horn, uh, Patrick Maloney, he's the head of the DCCC, Blake Moore, Tim Schreier, Senator Tommy Tuberville, Tom Suozzi. So these are the worst of the worst. Okay, now let me give you some more. 48 members of Congress and 182 senior-level congressional staffers who have violated a federal conflict of interest law. So that's, that's the total number, 182 senior-level congressional staffers and 48 members of Congress. Nearly 75 federal lawmakers held stocks in COVID-19 vaccine makers Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, or Pfizer in 2020, with many of them buying or selling these stocks in the early weeks of the pandemic, clearly trading on insider information. There are 15 lawmakers tasked with shaping U.S. defense policy that actively invest in military contractors. There's more than a dozen environmentally-minded Democrats who invested in fossil fuel companies or other corporations with concerning environmental track records. There are members who regularly chide the media but personally pour their money into at least one of the nation's largest news media or social media companies, including Facebook, Twitter, Comcast, Disney, The New York Times, and more. So, great work here from uh, Business Insider. And you can go through it. I'll leave the link in the video description box, all the specifics for each individual person here. We know from previous stories. Okay, I'll give a few examples. Tom Price, he was the head of health and human services under Trump. Tom Price invested in a medical device company, then pushed, pushed a piece of legislation that drove up the stock price of the medical device company, therefore enriching himself. We had that famous story. Kelly Leffler, Diane Feinstein, and a bunch of others had a meeting right before the economy crashed as a result of COVID. In that secret D.C. politician meeting, they were telling each other, listen, dog, the market's going to crash skis. So make a move, do what you got to do, protect your money, do your thing. Flat out insider trading, these people sold millions of dollars in stocks, avoided the economic downturn where the stock market plummeted and everybody else got screwed, but they ran out the back door with all the money because they had that insider knowledge. The list goes on and on. Now, understand something. This isn't even the only avenue of corruption because the other open corruption that goes on is campaign contributions. This is literally personal money and wealth that we're dealing with here, personal stocks. So what they expose is a lot of these people make policy decisions that will impact their bottom line for the better. So if you own defense company stock, you're going to want more war because you want to make more money, and you will from the defense contractors because their stocks will go up when you do more war. That's just one example. Financial institutions, you're not going to want to regulate the big financial institutions if you're invested in the big financial institutions because that will make their stock go down. So you make the wrong decision on that. It actively impacts um, the, their the policy decisions that these people make. 
But the other form of corruption is the campaign contributions. The way that works is you run for office, lobbyists, corporations, billionaires, multimillionaires, they reach out to you, they give you money. And an office says, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. You help me fund my campaign. Therefore, what legislation do you want? You want a deregulation bill. You want a tax cut for the rich bill. You want you know, this rule revoked. You want whatever. So that's an open form of corruption. We shouldn't have private financing of elections. We should have public elections, clean elections, where you give everybody an equal voice, and it's not like billionaires have way more of a say than a grandma in Cleveland. So that's an open form of corruption. And now here's another open form of corruption. Why on earth should we allow these ghouls and gremlins to own stocks? Look, it's a choice to become a public servant. You want to become a public servant? Okay, publicly serve. Publicly serve. Don't publicly serve, but you own 40 stocks. And so every decision you make is with your fucking portfolio in mind because that is at odds with the will of the American people and the well-being of the American people. You will actively side with your bottom line over what your constituents need. Ban them from owning stocks. By the way, they are in violation of the Stock Act, these people. And it's not just the, the uh, people who are elected officials, although it is them too. It's also the staffers, which is also illegal, by the way, under the Stock Act. No, we need to go a lot further than this. Ban lawmakers from owning stocks. Ban the revolving door. So you can't just leave and go get paid in the private sector, go get paid to become some soulless lobbyist, because that's another way in which they can corrupt you. They can come up to you and say, look, I'm sure they did this with Kirsten Cinema. Parma probably went up to her and said, look, you kill the lower drug prices, and um, we'll pay a million dollars a year when you're out of here to do nothing, to be a lobbyist for us, to sit around. So if you want to make a million dollars a year, for the next 10 years, after you get out of this hellhole, we got your back, but you got to have our back, so kill, kill the lower drug prices. This is how it works, guys. And sometimes they don't even have to say it as explicitly. It's just a wink and a nod here and there. Ban the revolving door. Ban uh, D.C. politicians from owning stocks. Privately, uh, ban the private financing of elections and do public financing of elections. That might require a constitutional amendment, but it needs to be done. Until we get to that point, we are never going to have a government that represents us. They're always going to make decisions for their own financial well-being, for their own profit. And this is brazen corruption. I saw a tweet from Anthony Blinken yesterday that was like, today is anti-corruption day and we're launching new sanctions on people in these random countries. And it's like, this is laughable. This is laughable. The U.S. is deeply corrupt. Deeply corrupt. Corrupted by corporations and lobbyists and billionaires, Wall Street, the military, industrial complex, big pharma, health insurance companies, the list goes on and on. They own our system. They own it. And also now, for direct ballot initiatives, there could be foreign funding of that. So even foreign countries now. Foreign countries controlled Trump, too. They, uh, they controlled the Clintons, because the Clintons with the Clinton Foundation took money from the Gulf dictatorships, and they did for them. Saudi Arabia gave Trump money. He did for them. Israel gave Kushner money. They did for them. The whole thing is a cesspool of corruption, and we all see through it. And again, credit to Business Insider for doing the hard work to give us the details on it. It's great that we know the details, but we absolutely have to act on it because the system is rotten and disgusting beyond belief, and you wonder why people have no faith in our institutions. This is exactly why, because they've been given good reason to have no faith in our institutions. Clean it up and unironically drain the swamp. All right, next. T.J. Kirk, the amazing atheist, um, did a video the other day. It popped up on my feed. Uh, his podcast, Deep Fat Fried, was banned from YouTube, and it was banned for an incredibly dumb reason. Take a look. 
Hello, everybody. Um, our December 1st edition of Flash Fried has been removed by YouTube for a supposed violation of their rules against misinformation. Uh, this is due to a satirical statement that Scotty made during the episode in which he facetiously doubted the veracity of the 2020 election. Our viewers know that we do not spread misinformation about the election and actively mock the radical right-wingers who do. We find it troubling that many channels on YouTube actively push election conspiracies without consequence, yet our channel receives a strike for a completely sarcastic and satirical statement. We are confident that this strike will be removed once we can penetrate deep enough into YouTube's so-called support system to actually speak with a human being. But we wanted you all to know what was going on, and we thank you for your attention and for your support. This is crazy. So, Scotty, TJ's brother, co-host on Deep Fat Ride. Paul Zigo was the other one, by the way. Um, he was being satirical, and he was playing the character of, like, the right-wing idiot, and he was talking about, yeah, like, stop the steal, 2020 election stolen, and Donald Trump won. And YouTube looked at that and said, that is a, that's a person trying to make a factual claim about the election, and it's not true, and it's spreading misinformation. And so now we're going to give them a bogus strike. Now, they appealed it a number of times, and every time, they were overruled, and the strike stands. What? What? Look, that's one of those things where, you know, you say, oh, okay, maybe it was an accident, whatever. On the first appeal, the first attempt, they got to be like, oh, our bad. We apologize. They didn't do it. They rejected it. As of the recording of this video, as far as I know, they still have that strike. We got to stop with this, man. This is madness. Look, I'll go a step further. Uh, and this might be something that I, they might even disagree with me on this, but I'm going to go this step further. Even if somebody was downplaying the results of the election, they're wrong and they're dumb. There were 60 court cases that upheld the result. Even Trump-appointed judges were like, you didn't win, bro. Get over it. They did the Arizona audit, and they expected Trump to win Arizona after that, the conclusion of that audit. And what ended up happening is Biden won by more. Biden won. Full stop. But if somebody says the opposite, I wouldn't ban them. I wouldn't ban them. I sort of want to know where the crazy people are so I can point at them and laugh and mock them and do satire around them. But apparently you can't even do that now. Look, ultimately, I think it was a mistake. I think it will eventually get reversed. But this is why you, never, you should never open the door in the first place to this kind of nonsense. Because if you can't discuss a conspiracy theory like that, well, then obviously you can't discuss a conspiracy theory like 9-11. And then obviously you can't discuss, well, what happens when you get to the conspiracy theories that the majority of Americans think are true, like that the JFK one where they say it wasn't just Lee Harvey Oswald who acted and something deeper went on there. Can you not talk about that either? Like, in order to discuss the true conspiracy theories, you have to also allow people to discuss the incorrect conspiracy theories and the wrong conspiracy theories. I mean, UFOs aren't verified, or at least the existence of aliens isn't verified, but are you not allowed to do any videos on that or talk about that because it's... It's not true and not verified, so it's misinformation. You can't, like, once you open this door, there's no shutting it. And everybody, anybody who's mildly offended by something or anybody who makes a claim of fact about something, it could just ban that person, ban that person, ban that person, ban that person. And this is even, like, making fun of the people who are wrong and incorrect and conspiracy theorists. And that got caught up in the web. 
This is why you can never trust these people to make these decisions. Certainly don't trust the AI bots that make the decision. But even the individual humans, because when they do the appeal, humans look at it, and even the humans like, no. God, it's so backwards, man. Look, I, I said it before, I'll say it again. I'll lay it out for you. What are the things that shouldn't be allowed? Libel, slander, doxing, targeted harassment, direct threats of violence. Those are the things that cross a real line, and that's even like, not only might you get banned, but that's like criminal territory. You're actually committing crimes. I got it. Even every free speech absolutist looks at that and goes, sure. But that's it. But that, outside of that, you've got to let people talk. You've got to let people say stuff. You've got to let people, you got to give people the freedom to be wrong, to, to mess stuff up. Like, that has to be allowed. If not, what, the, what's the end game of this? Because who's going to fact-check the fact-checkers? How do we know that the fact-checkers are right about stuff? Obviously, they're not. They made the wrong decision here. Bring back their channel. Are you kidding me? They have a hilarious podcast. It's a great podcast. It's fun. It's funny. It's interesting. Um, and they just got the hammer dropped on them for no goddamn reason. God, it all started when the media started running fear-mongering pieces about spread of misinformation and disinformation, and these sensitive-ass social media companies, you know, overreacted and cracked down on everything. And, you know, this happened with Adpocalypse. One Nestle ad ran on some white supremacist channel, and then they, they turned around and defunded all of news and politics for like a week, and we got caught up in that. Why should I have to punish? Because some Nestle ad ran on some asshole's channel. I had nothing to do with that. It doesn't affect the, you know, how correct my work is or how thoughtful my work is, but they were just like, hey, we don't want the problem. Ban it. We want to stop the negative press. Here's an idea. Who cares about the negative press? They're paper tigers anyway. They only have the power over you as a social media company as much as you let them have the power over you. Whatever happened to, no, you're wrong. Whatever happened to that? Why can't you say that to the media when they run these fear-mongering pieces? Because, by the way, the media has a conflict of interest. The media doesn't want new media overriding them, so they have an incentive to blow up every little thing that happens in new media and independent media and say, see, these people are crazy. They go, see, they're crazy. That's why you've got to come to us all the time and forget them. They view it as competition. I mean, the fact that they haven't pieced this together, the people at the top of YouTube, or they haven't, they don't care, or they're still going along with the narrative anyway, it's devastating. And we've all been impacted by it to one extent or another, whether it was the original adpocalypse, or now, of course, it's the algorithm, that the algorithm flat out strangles some channels. My channel is strangled by the algorithm. We put out the same amount of content, same quality content as we always did. We used to gain 30 or 40,000 subs a month. Now we don't gain any subs a month. So now you could, oh, Kyle, you fell off, or it's because the election, you know, ended, so therefore you're not going to have as much growth. I've been on this platform for a decade. I know the ebbs and flows. I know the trends. I know the way everything unfolds. And I'll tell you what, it absolutely is possible you have a 40% drop in subs or something like that after an election. What is not possible is you go from gaining 30,000 or 40,000 subs to zero. That doesn't happen unless YouTube comes out and admits we are prioritizing authoritative news sources, authoritative CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, those hacks who are wrong about most stuff they say. We're prioritizing them over independent and new media. And they came out and admitted it, and that's what happened. It coincided perfectly with that announcement that my channel and other independent media channels hit a fucking wall when it came to new views and new subgrowth. That's not a coincidence. That is not a coincidence. So we have to find a way around this stuff. And they got it even worse than I do. Jordan Chariton has it even worse than I do. I mean, they hide his stuff more than they hide anybody else's stuff. Um, this is just a ban that is unfair, totally illegitimate. 
even according to their own terms of service, the idea is you can't promote election conspiracies. They don't say you can't mock it. Look, I'll say it again. Support independent media as much as possible. When we had TJ, the amazing atheist, on Crystal Kyle and Friends, uh, they got a nice little bump in, in Patreon subs over at their podcast. So go support them however you can. You know, Become a member of uh, their Patreon and help them out because it's obviously a difficult time for them and what they're going through is totally unfair and totally illegitimate. And look, support all independent media however you can. If you can throw this show two or three bucks a month, greatly appreciate it. Um, if you can like all the videos and... Um, click the bell and sub and, you know, post it on your own social media, post it on Facebook, try to send it, send it around as much as possible because we got to find a way around the algorithm because it absolutely, positively, 100%, without a doubt, strangles all of us who are out here doing good work and are buried. And this is even a level above the buried that I'm used to seeing because they just unfairly gave a strike on their channel. So um, YouTube reversed this decision. By the way, final point. Tweet it at YouTube, creator, at YouTube creators on Twitter. Tweet at them and say, bring back the Deep Fat Fried podcast. But do a little bit of a public uh, pressure campaign because they need to reverse this. This is an absolutely disgraceful decision. And I'm just sorry that these guys, who are good guys, had to go through this horrendous, annoying thing. All right, next. So the Supreme Court made a decision here that doesn't surprise me, but it may surprise uh, some of you guys. So let me break it down for you. Mark Joseph Stern says, new, the Supreme Court refuses to block a New York regulation requiring healthcare workers to get the COVID vaccine with no religious exemptions. Thomas Alito and Gorsuch dissented. So it was we the Patriots versus uh, Hochul, the governor of, of New York. The application for injunctive relief presented to Justice Sotomayor and by her and by her referred to the court, is denied. It was Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch who would have granted the application. So the state of New York says, look, if you're a healthcare worker, you have to get the vaccine, no excuses. It's a high-risk field. We're not going to give you an option. If you work in a nursing home or if you work in healthcare, get the vaccine, stop it. There's a list of like, however, eight, 10 other vaccines, I don't know the exact number, that you have to get and there are no excuses. Why would it be any different for the COVID vaccine? That was effectively the argument. But some people, a right-wing group was like, no, we don't like that. And so some people were claiming, oh, I have a religious uh, issue with it. And so I want to opt out because, and say, hey, it infringes on my freedom of religion if you say I have to get it, even though my religion says I don't have to. Um, and the court is siding with the state of New York and saying, no, if they say you got to get the vaccine, you got to get the vaccine. So this is the Supreme Court siding with a hard vaccine mandate. Now, granted, it's for a very high-risk field, but that's what the Supreme Court is doing here. Now, remember, I covered the story not that long ago. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said about Biden's OSHA vaccine soft mandate. So Biden's rule is if it's a business with 100 employees or more, you either need to get a vaccine or get tested. That was Biden's rule. The Fifth Circuit Court goes, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, we're not allowing that. We're temporarily blocking it. So now it's going to be appealed. It's going to go to a higher court. Eventually, it might, reach the, you know, might go to the Supreme Court. And my guess is the Supreme Court is either going to say, actually, Biden is allowed to do that. OSHA is allowed to do that. Because they've consistently sided with vaccine hard mandates with the Supreme Court. Going all the way back to 1905, there's case law pointing in this direction. So they'll either say that or the Supreme Court might say, listen, Biden can't do this. But 
this exact same policy can be implemented. It just has to go through Congress first. So it'll be one or the other. Either they'll slap down the rule and say Congress has to pass it, or they'll just allow the rule. But they're not going to say that um, the rule is not allowed full stop. They're not going to say that because that's not what case law in the U.S. is. And this is a right-wing court that's siding with a hard vaccine mandate. By the way, I don't even agree with them. <laughs> I don't even agree with them. You guys know my policy. I'm in favor of vaccine or test. So you, that's how I found the best way to walk the line between caring about individual rights uh, and freedoms, but also the collective and community well-being. Both of those things matter to a leftist, and it should. So how do you walk that line? Well, a hard vaccine mandate is too authoritarian, in my opinion, but nothing at all is, is way too uh, nonchalant about the community well-being and the collective, and that could lead to way more COVID cases. So the best way to split that difference is vaccine or test. I don't even agree with the court on this. But this is a right-wing court saying, yeah, hard vaccine mandate, we side with it, we're okay. So look, the reason I'm explaining this to you is because a lot of people are under the misimpression that, you know, if anything, case law in the U.S. is the opposite, that, well, obviously they can't force you to take a vaccine. Yeah, they can, and they have, and they've ruled that way a bunch of times. And in 1905, I mean, that was the case that we keep referring to. It was a place in Massachusetts, a guy uh, didn't want to get a vaccine because he had a bad reaction to vaccines previously. So he's like, I'm not taking that shit. I know what happened last time. It was terrible for me. And the Supreme Court was like, fuck you are, son. Take it. Now, granted, the punishment was what? It was, a, it was a fine. But they said to him, look, if you don't take it, you have to pay the fine. So they didn't even let him opt out of it. Now, again, I wouldn't have even been that harsh. Now, I don't know how good the testing capacity was back then. But again, I favor you have to get vaccinated or get tested. But that's what the Supreme Court said. So in other words, don't fall for people who are basically charlatans and are lying to you about the nature of the Constitution or the nation of U.S. case law and the nature of the precedent in this country. No, even though you had that Fifth Circuit Court say what they said about Biden's uh, you know, vaccine or test policy, that's not going to be, I don't think that's going to be the thing that ultimately stands. And this is further evidence to that effect. This is the Supreme Court, which is right-leaning, agreeing to a hard, with a hard mandate that New York did for high-risk fields. So anyway, there you have it. It just flies in the face of what a lot of people think the current situation is. Okay. So Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, face-planted, backpedaling from the recent bigotry scandal against Ilhan Omar. You had Lauren Boebert, who called her part of the jihad squad and joked like she was a terrorist. And there's been a lot of pushback over this. And that's good that there was, because it's totally unfair. And it, it puts Ilhan in danger. She gets so many death threats, and this stuff feeds that. Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene addressed this. And um, you're going to see what she said this time and what her record shows. I've heard a lot of conversation from my colleagues across the aisle about Islamophobia in America, which we completely are against hate of any kind against anyone. There is an Islamic invasion into our government offices right now. The Democrats are now controlled by the Jihad Squad. Ilhan Omar doesn't deserve committee. She can represent radical Islam in the United States Congress. We're going to explain about how you can't swear in on the Koran. Why, why not just own it? When it was that brazen and that open and that in your face and that bigoted, why not just be like, yeah, that's how I feel? It's actually super weaselly 
to be like, we're against hate and bigotry and Islamophobia of any kind. Because clearly you're not. And by the way, who should be the most pissed at her over this? The bigoted right-wingers. Because they, they could look at her and be like, softy, look at what you did. You caved to the woke mob and you said that you're not in favor of any sort of hatred or, or bigotry or Islamophobia. Well, your record shows opposite. See, all it took was them pushing you a little bit and you buckled. So the, the bigoted right-wingers should probably be the most pissed. But look, my whole point in covering this is like, at least own it. If you're going to be that bigoted, at least own it. Just say it. Just say it. Just be like, yeah, you know, I, Marjorie Taylor Greene, dislike Muslims, and I don't consider them American, and I think it's an evil, violent religion, and uh, I equate the, the worst terrorists in Al-Qaeda and ISIS with um, an, a calm, mild manner, mild-mannered Muslim congresswoman who's trying to, you know, end the wars. Because that's how she really feels. And it's just after this massive public backlash that she's now trying to be like, me, bro? I don't even know what you're talking about. We're not Islamophobic. So, look, honestly, on a serious note, my heart goes out to Ilhan Omar because she's literally played the death threats for us to hear. And they are vicious, man. And what Boebert's been saying and what Marjorie Taylor Greene has been saying and what the fringe elements on the right have been saying, really do, they do put her life in danger. Because you do have people out there who really are dumb enough to think like she's some sort of terrorist or whatever. And, um... God, that's so stupid, and that's so bigoted. And now she needs extra security as a result of these people. So um, they've made it incredibly difficult for, you know, a Muslim female congresswoman to be outspoken, no matter what the issue is. She's talking about ending war or giving people health care or civil liberties or whatever. They just reflexively hate her and say terrible things and dismiss her opinion outright because of who she is. So I hope most people can see through it. I think most people do. Uh, but yeah, Marjorie Taylor, I mean, this is just a loathsome person and she won't even own her loathsomeness. Now she's trying to weasel her way out of it because there's been sufficient pushback to the type of stuff they've been doing. Okay. Let me take a quick break. Then when we come back, we'll wrap it up. We got Trump hammering Netanyahu. We got Corey Bush getting dogpiled for speaking the truth. And we got Jordan Peterson. So stay right there. We will be right back.
All right, y'all, we back. We are... All right, let's keep it going. Let's keep it going. So Representative Cory Bush got absolutely dogpiled for telling the truth to Democrats. Take a look at this. She tweeted, a note to Democrats who blame progressives after losing an election, forcing millions to start paying student loans again and cutting off the child tax credit at the start of an election year is not a winning strategy. We're warning you now, don't point fingers in November. That is the truest thing uh, anybody has ever said in the history of the world. And um, look at some of these responses. These are the first three responses, by the way, the first three. Do this in private. Twitter is not the place to air party differences. It rattles voter confidence. We cannot afford this at this crucial time in our country's history. You need to take this tweet down. Wow. Take it down? As a Democrat with a platform, don't you think it would be more effective to push the very tangible successes the Democrats have actually accomplished instead of doing this? If you haven't noticed, a Republican's base is fired up and ready to go. They are ready to get ours back in power. I admire your grit and determination, but I don't see how promising that people won't vote gets the end results that you desire. These should be fired up to vote to get Biden the supermajority. To get Biden the supermajority, and then what? Well, right now, Biden has the House, he has the Senate, and he has the presidency. And what are they doing with it? What are they doing with it? He's not expanding Medicare. Build Back Better appears dead in the water. So no, no child care, no elder care, um, no lower drug prices. Um, he's not eliminating student loan debt. He's not legalizing marijuana. He's not uh, doing free college. He's not cutting another round of checks. So right now, they have every branch of government, and they're not doing anywhere near enough, just like the same thing happened with Obama. He did have a supermajority, and we got Obamacare instead of single-payer or a public option. So get him a supermajority, and then what? And then you still have to deal with Manchin and Cinema and the handful of hardcore blue-dog corporatist neoliberal Democrats, and then when they end up blocking the agenda, people like you came up, come out and say the same thing. Hey, 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 don't bash our own. Just get even more Democrats in power. Well, what if it doesn't matter how many you get if there's always going to be a mansion, a cinema, and just the right number of Democrats to destroy the whole agenda? What then? For once in your life, take a side based on policy. The reason I'm against Manchin, the reason I'm against cinema, the reason I'm against the blue dogs and the corporatists, the reason I'm now against Biden for what he's doing here is because they're not actually on the side of policy for the American people. So you have to side with Bernie. You have to side with being tough on the Democratic Party. You have to criticize them to make them better. Now, you could do that while keeping your eye on the ball and understanding how bad the Republicans are. That's easy, and I do it all the time. I criticize the Republicans all the time. But you can't just take a hands-off approach and expect the Democrats to do the right thing or just give them a supermajority and expect them to do the right thing. They still need to be pushed. They still need to be pushed. And Cori Bush is doing it, and they're saying, hey, look, they said it. They said it. I just read it to you. One of them says, take the tweet down. Oh, it rattles voter confidence for you to say this. No, you know what rattles voter confidence? When you propose a list of like 15 policies that are really popular and you end up doing none of them, that's what rattles voter confidence. When was Joe Biden his most popular? When he got into office, he reversed all of uh, Trump's terrible executive orders and he cut a uh, 
stimulus check to people. That's when he was his most popular. That's when he was over 50%. Now he's doing nothing but twiddling his thumbs, and he's all the way down to, depending on what poll you look at, around 40%. So don't talk about rattling voter confidence. Look in the mirror. The reason voter confidence is rattled is because of Joe Biden, because of Joe Manchin, because of Kirsten Cinema. It's not because of Cori Bush. Cori Bush is warning them, do the right thing or else. By the way, here's a fact. In the last election, every single Democrat who ran on Medicare for All won. Every single Democrat. Here's another fact. Sherrod Brown is a senator from Ohio, a Democrat. Ohio is now a red state. Sherrod Brown is not like Joe Manchin. He's not a right-wing Democrat. He's much more affiliated with the left. So he ran more to the left in a red state and won. Joe Donnelly, in the state right next door, Indiana, he ran as, like, I'm Ronald Reagan, but I'm a Democrat, and he lost in the same election cycle. Claire McCaskill, who is a Republican-like Democrat, lost to Josh Hawley in Missouri. Don't listen to these charlatans who tell you you've got to be more corporate, you've got to be more conservative, you've got to be more neoliberal, you've just got to be more of a party player. No. You know who's not being a party player? Manchin and Cinema and Biden. Because the agenda is what it is. The agenda is, was the Build Back Better bill, the $3.5 trillion bill. If you wanted to unify, you unify around that. And you do everything you can to get it through. Everything you can. If you have to exert pressure on Mansion and Cinema, if you have to primary Mansion and Cinema, if you have to threaten them behind the scenes with prosecution over their own criminal action, this is what you do to get it done. They didn't do that. And so Cory Bush is saying, hey, man, you guys aren't delivering. And so when you lose, don't go blaming the left, because that's not true. It's not true. When you look at the issues, people agree with the left on the economic stuff. So do the economic stuff and watch what happens. I mean, for the love of God, if Biden woke up today, signed an executive order to legalize marijuana, signed an executive order to abolish student loan debt, his approval rating would go up at least five points, probably go up ten points. But if Cori Bush dare say something like that, hey, be a team player, what are you doing? I hate this notion. Like, you can never criticize Democrats ever. Look, I get it. I don't agree with the philosophy of people who are on the left, and they only beat up on the Democrats. Because you have to understand how your message is perceived by people, and some people will interpret that wrongly as, well, you're bolstering the Republicans. So I get it. I'm not in favor of spending 100% of my time bashing the Democrats. I also keep the Republicans in check and go after them ruthlessly. Just look at my channel. But what's for damn sure is, don't tell me you only get to go after Republicans and you can never go after Democrats. That is absurd. Because clearly Cori Bush cares about these policies, and that's why she's going after Democrats to say, hey, do the right thing or there are going to be consequences. I'm warning you in advance. Don't tell me I'm wrong later. I'm right. She is right. And she's dogpiled for telling the truth. And that's the problem. These Democratic partisans with complete and utter brain rot do not care about this stuff in the sense of policies and improving lives. They don't. They care about this stuff in terms of the team game. That's how they care. Team blue versus team red. And so this, oh my God, you just crossed team blue. How dare you? No. How dare you not look at these things objectively and try to improve lives? It ain't Cori Bush's problem. It's yours. Look in the mirror. All right, final story of the day. Uh, Jordan Peterson is a fascinating character in many respects. Um, He, when it comes to psychology stuff, I watched a lecture of his 2017 lecture where he talks about Freud and Freud's theories. And look, it was brilliant. 
I don't care what you think about Jordan Peterson personally or, or politically, uh, on his psychology stuff and even his self-help stuff, there's a reason why he's gained a colossal following. And if you're on the left, it does you no favors to downplay that or to not try to understand where the interest and the intrigue comes from among a gigantic group of people. So in some ways, I think the guy's brilliant. In other ways, I have profound disagreements with him, namely in the realm of politics, namely, namely in the realm of religion as well. So uh, Jordan Peterson went on Dr. Oz's show. By the way, Dr. Oz is now running for Senate in, I think, Pennsylvania. He's up against John Fetterman. Oh, boy, that's going to be an interesting race to see. Dr. Oz definitely has the ability to potentially win. But Fetterman's a great candidate, too. And obviously, I agree with Fetterman on uh, policy way more. So I'd be supporter of Fetterman. But anyway, I digress. Jordan Peterson went on Dr. Oz's show, and he explained his politics here. I want to take a look, and then I'll respond. Zero is the ultra-liberal, and 100 is the ultra-conservative, alt-right. Where are you on that spectrum? You think of yourself as more conservative, more liberal? I know in your life you've changed. Well, I'm a traditionalist in many senses, you know, but I'm a very creative person, so it's very difficult temperamentally for me to place myself on the political spectrum. It's not like I don't think that the dispossessed deserve a political voice. You know, that's why I was interested in socialist politics when I was a kid, and I understand perfectly well that hierarchies dispossess and that something has to be done about that. But I'm also, I also think that we mess with fundamental social structures at our great peril. I think we've destabilized marriage very badly, and that that's, been, that's not been good for people, especially not good for children. But I don't think it's been good for adult men and women either. And I certainly, as a social scientist, one of the things you learn if you're a social scientist and you're well-educated and, and informed, is that if you take a complex system, let's imagine you have a complex system and you have a hypothesis about how to intervene so that it will improve. Okay, so what will you learn? You'll learn once you implement the intervention that you didn't understand the system and that your stupid intervention did a bunch of things you didn't expect it to, many of which ran counter to your original intent. And you will inevitably learn that. So. Uh, I, I learned that I had a whole series of very wise mentors who insisted to everyone they talked to who was interested in public policy, for example, that when they put in place a well-meaning public policy initiative, that they put aside a substantial proportion of the budget to evaluate the outcome of the initiative, because the probability that the initiative would produce the results desired was virtually zero. And I believe that that's technically true. And so that tilts me in the conservative direction because I think, well, that's sort of working, that system. And I'm also not a utopian. So I don't expect systems to work perfectly. If they're not degenerating into absolute tyranny, I tend to think they're doing quite well. Because if you look worldwide and you look at the entire course of human history, degeneration into abject tyranny is the norm. And so if you see systems like our systems, say in the, in the democratic Western world, that are struggling by not too badly. It's like you should be in awe of those structures because they're so difficult to produce and so unlikely. And then I think, well, you take a system that's working not too badly. Think, well, I'm going to radically improve it. It's like, no, you're not. You're not going to radically improve it. You might be able to improve it incrementally if you devoted a large part of your entire life to it and you were very humble about your methods and, and your ambition. But if you think that some 
careless tweak of this complex system as a consequence of the ideological presuppositions you learned in three weeks in your social justice class at university, and that's going to produce a radical improvement? Like, you, 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 you can't even begin to fathom the depths of your ignorance. So here's my issue with that. Um, to sum up his argument towards the end there is, hey, there are well-meaning lefties who are kind of utopian and pie in the sky in many respects, and they intervene in systems to try to improve them. They have these ideas that seem practical, but actually those ideas uh, end up being very counterproductive, and they mess up a system that was otherwise working better before. That's my you know, steel manning of his, his position that he's espousing there at the end. Um, and my response to that is, listen, I came into left-wing politics with the exact opposite mindset, namely here to do pie-in-the-sky uh, utopian analysis and tweaks to the system. I'm here to try to empirically improve the system based on data and information and knowledge that we already have. So, for example, the economic policies of the social democracies – I mean, how many times do I have to bring it up, whether it's uh, the universal health care systems that they have? They kick our butt in every measurable way. When you compare their systems to the U.S. system, so there was the World Health Organization study, which had us ranked number 37, and, of course, littered in the top 10 was virtually all universal health care systems uh, throughout the developed world. Then there's the Commonwealth Fund study, which ranked 11 um, industrialized countries' health care systems. We were 11th out of 11, and, of course, you know, the – the single-payer systems and the universal healthcare systems were at the top there. So it is an, an empirical argument to say, hey, if we give everybody healthcare free at the point of service, funded with our tax dollars, then you're doing the morally correct thing, the ethically correct thing, but also the economically correct thing and, and the fiscally conservative thing because it fundamentally ends up saving money because we have a price-gouging middleman in this country called the health insurance companies, which rip everybody off, and they play no – necessary role. So that's a leftist policy that is based solely on empiricism and objective analysis and saying, hey, they do it better than us based on all the data, so why don't we do that? Same thing with like free college systems, for example. Same thing with, in some of the Scandinavian countries, they have near universal unionization. So in those countries, workers make much better wages and have much better lives and report much more happiness as a result of that. So my, uh, you know, me being attracted to leftism, is, is based on the opposite of what he's claiming here. You know, he's claiming it's just these, almost these naive do-gooders who really do mean well, but they end up messing stuff up because their ideas, once, once you implement them, make things worse. No, I'm talking about look at the actual data and look at the world systems, and when you do that, you find that a lot of these social democratic ideas are kind of no-brainers, and they really destroy our more rugged capitalist approach, and um, I don't really think that this point that I'm making is even a debatable one, to be honest. I think it, it is, it's ironclad. And so that's my, my main disagreement with him. He says something in there that he says, quote, that's sort of working, that system. And so that's why you don't, like, mess with it. And again, I would just disagree as a point of fact on that, because you guys know I run through these facts all the time, but Half of Americans make $30,000 a year or less, and this was pre-pandemic. Um, about 30 million Americans don't have health insurance. Medical bills are the top cause of bankruptcy in this country. 80% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 
some uh, astonishing number of Americans can't even, uh, you know, afford a $1,000 emergency. Six people in the Walton family have more wealth than nearly 50%, half the country combined. They're about to start uh, student loan repayments. 89% of Americans who have student loan debt say, I'm not financially stable enough to start paying student loans back again. So there's a real baseline systemic failure that we're dealing with here. And to say, well, well, that's, that system is, quote, that's sort of working, that system, I just don't agree with that. Yeah, is it working in comparison to, you know, some developing country that has a GDP that's 20% of ours and a population that's way less and they don't have plumbing? Sure, but I don't, that level of analysis and that comparison, I don't think is, is the right standard to evaluate it by. Um, and just to run through some of the other things he says there. So when he's asked, are you on, basically on the left or the right? He says, well, I'm a traditionalist, but I'm also a cre creative person. Now, in his conception of things, the creative stuff usually falls on the left of the spectrum. The traditional stuff falls on the right of the spectrum. So he says, hey, it's hard for me to put myself on the spectrum. But he does go on to admit, like, I'd probably lean conservative. Um, the traditionalist thing, it's, I, I'd be interested in digging into what he means there. Because uh, I think what he's trying to say is, like, I believe in marriage. You know, I believe in um, religion as a, as a guiding force, in a sense and that that is more of a traditional outlook on stuff. He does admit that hierarchies uh, dispossess and something has to be done about that. Again, that gets back to the ideas, what I think are empirically good ideas of uh, left economic approaches. Listen, I have, um, I have some fun news for everybody. So we're currently in talks, we're, we're trying to get Jordan Peterson on Crystal Kyle and Friends because there's so much I want to talk to him about. Um, in many ways, he's become a cultural phenomenon. And like I said, I, I actually thoroughly respect and like his uh, his um, psychology stuff, and even his self help stuff. I think is helps a lot of people, a lot of people who need guidance, and he provides the guidance. And I don't think there's any harm in telling people, hey, clean your room and stand up straight and do the right thing and have take responsibility. So I got a lot to talk to him about on the psychology front. He's done brilliant breakdowns of uh, Carl Jung and, and Sigmund Freud and, and others, and so there'll be plenty of areas of agreement. But then also we will we'll get into our disagreements. We'll get into our disagreement on economics, we'll get into our disagreement on politics, we'll get into our disagreements on religion. And so it should be a really uh, substantive and fun and interesting conversation. I hope all you guys will tune in. So yeah, we're, we're currently in talks to try to get them on Crystal Kyle and friends. And um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. All right, guys. Love y'all. Talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.